Hello, and welcome to episode number 43 of the ALS Association Greater Philadelphia Chapter Podcast. I'm your host, Tony Heil, a Director of Communications and Public Policy here at the Greater Philadelphia Chapter, and I'm excited for today's episode where we have guest Ann Cooney, who's going to be talking a bit about some important patient services. Before we get there, I want to tell you about some of our uh, chapter events and ways you can get involved. You can donate online at alsphiladelphia.org. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and all those things, all with the same name, at ALS Philadelphia. And you can volunteer, you can be an advocate, uh, and you can share your story. Every little thing you do makes a big difference, especially if more of us are doing it together. One of the things that attracted me to this chapter and to working here is not only my connection to ALS, uh, because if you've listened before, you know that my grandfather had it, but it's the fact that the chapter provides a lot of very important patient services programs that help people deal every day with this terrible disease. Uh, those things involve wheelchairs, they involve our clinics, our, our otherwise known as our treatment centers. Uh, they involve research uh, and assistive technology. But sometimes it's the day-to-day things that happen to everybody that can be the most important. If you are living with ALS or really of any sort of other health disease, you know that sometimes just the shock of dealing with that and dealing with doctors and insurance and nurses and caregivers of all kinds can be very difficult, just learning how to interact and the questions you need to ask and making sure that you get all the care that you need for the person who's sick or whatever the situation may be. Thankfully, we have a lot of experts here who are also always learning as they go because the situations change as well. And they deal with every person with ALS uh, individually as a person, not just a number, and making sure that they get the compassionate care that they need and deserve. One of the people that is doing a big job to do that here in our patient services department is Ann Cooney, a social worker here at our chapter. Uh, She's been with us for a couple years, and Ann's going to tell us a bit today in this podcast about how she helps people navigate some of these problems, take a very difficult situation and make it at least slightly easier, and, you know, really make sure that they get everything that they need. So, Thanks, Anne, for joining our podcast. You're welcome. I'm happy to be here. I know you were very excited to be a part of this as soon as possible. <laughs> Absolutely. So you're a social worker at the chapter, and we have um, like eight social workers, or I don't know, like a few, we have a bunch of social workers that work here. We do. We have, so there are four of us that are here in Philadelphia that work closely together, and then we have our other social workers that are in our other service areas that encompass the greater Philadelphia chapter. And even though you have social workers at different places, I know there's some here in Philadelphia, there's some in the Hershey, South Central area, Um, Wendy Barnes does a lot in the Lehigh Valley area, and then we even have people that are doing stuff in other parts of our geography. Um, You guys all communicate about best practices, learning from each other. Absolutely. Whenever somebody has a question or is looking for resources, we tend to call and email each other to find out who knows of what would you know, what is the latest, greatest, or just an answer to a question. So we all collaborate together for the right answers. You've been a social worker, not here, but how long have you been a social worker? Oh, gosh. Uh, (laughs) That's going to be the hardest question you're going to have today, is adding up all those years. Oh, my goodness. 20, uh, 27 years? 27 years. Let's see, where was I? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, so you bring a wealth of experience in that. And now, from my experience of working with the social workers here, the experience you bring is not necessarily just about know-how in terms of technical stuff, though that's important, but it's also just the experience of listening and being a compassionate caregiver um, 
because the more experience you have, the more you're able to handle some very difficult problems. Is that right? Absolutely. I think experience in many ways is just as important, if not more important, than the amount of education that you have. I find that, you know, going to college and going to graduate school certainly gives you that foundation, but the experience and the years spent working with people, working in the jobs that you have, is so much more powerful. And then you bring that to ALS now, which I'm sure provides some other challenges, because it's not the same thing as social work for a lot of other issues, even health issues, right? No. ALS is very specific, and it's a very devastating disease, and it's tough. It's it's devastating for the patients and their families, but it's difficult for us as well because we kind of see the how it affects our patients from start to finish, and that can be very difficult at times. And so I know that at the, the clinics and elsewhere, you guys powwow together with the doctors and nurses and other professionals, uh, as well as the family caregivers. Um, so do you learn from each other, oh, I know such and such patient and they really need to have this in mind, or this is working here, maybe it's something that would work with you as well? Uh, yes, I mean, we just, based on experience with other patients and families, we learn about resources that may be helpful to our own uh, patients and families. The other nice thing, you know, about working with the team approach with the doctors, the nurses, the therapists, and so forth, is we sit down as a group after every clinic and talk about every patient and really brainstorm and decide what is going to be the best approach, best treatment, best care for that person at that stage of their disease process. And I know we have like our mental health nurse who provides a very different kind of special kind of care. There's the neurologist that obviously provides that level of care in terms of telling people um, specifics on health. But uh, what kind of things do social workers do that's important? That Because I think people don't understand what social workers do. And the more I know, it's like, well, you really need a lot more of them, not just here, but like in all facets of healthcare. Yeah. We do a lot of everything. I, I think it depends on the patient that you're working with. I think a big factor is how you connect with that patient and family. Um, you know, we we meet our patients when they're first diagnosed, and part of the social worker's job is just to educate them on, on, on the Philadelphia chapter and the services that we are able to offer. We try to get a good understanding and assessment of their home, how they're functioning, whether or not they're still working, what type of supports they have at home, whether they're married, uh, single, if they have young children at home, things like that. Uh, we really begin to look at if they're still working, are they able to continue doing their jobs based on their ALS and what phase of the disease they may be in. Uh, we look at insurance, what type of insurance they have, uh, whether or not they're um, eligible or ready for social security disability. If they're a veteran, we really go into the whole VA process and the services and benefits that are available to them being a veteran and help guide them through that process of applying for the benefits. Uh, we assess, you know, if they do need help at home, um, what services are available to them, either through our chapter or through their county, and we, again, give them resources to explore those options and get the referral started for that. There's so many things. I mean, there's so much that we do, and it just, for each person, it varies because it depends on their situation and what their needs are at the time. 
yeah, I, I mean, I've seen the other people here, like Brenda, who you can listen to in a past podcast, uh, and, uh, and Wendy. There's a whole long list of things that you might talk about with any individual person, and they could be a lot different. Some people's needs are a lot greater than others, and your job is not only to uh, figure out like their the quest answers to their questions, but figure out the questions that they should be answering as well, right? Because you don't know what you don't know when it comes to ALS. Yeah, we really kind of have to get try to get a good sense of where they are. I mean, it's hard, you know, when when they first hear that diagnosis, it's devastating. Yeah. And for us then to come in and tell them all about the Greater Philadelphia chapter and all the services that we can provide and all the other resources that may be available to them without completely overwhelming them at the same time because they're just beginning to digest the fact that they have ALS. But I think one of the really important things in this whole job and with this disease is being proactive rather than reactive mm -hmm. and preparing so you're ready for each step of the way and each next phase is so important but again it's hard to do that sometimes because it's hard for people to comprehend all that and deal with all of that mm -hmm. it, it's a fine line that you have to walk but it's important because you don't want to see them struggling when maybe they don't need to and so you, that's really a very important thing. I think generally we're not a proactive species, right? Right, like, right. You know, we react. Right. I react to things all the time. And it's not always easy to be proactive because you don't no. know what to be proactive about. So right. um, you have to kind of challenge people's way of doing things a lot of the time, right? Right. And then just kind of when you're preparing them for the next phase, it can be upsetting because it's another loss of function or loss of independence or another reminder that you have this terminal disease, you know, and that can be very hard for someone to accept. And so it's, it's difficult. It's difficult for me because I feel I, I don't want to upset them, but at the same time, I don't want to see them go home, not do anything, and then find themselves in a situation where it is very, you know, it could be dangerous almost, so right. it's it's tough. Yeah, you want you want what's best for all of them, right? And I I can tell that a lot of the time, you and the other social workers form a real connection early on. Yeah. Not they become best friends, but you because you're working on the specific disease, you form a connection. You understand what they're going through, and and so there's a it goes beyond just well, it's my job. It's a sincere desire mm -hmm. to do that kind of stuff. No, I, I, you do. I mean, there are certain patients that you're just really going to connect with and click with and, and form a real relationship with and that, you know, it's just you want to be there for them, you want to help them, you want to protect them in every way possible. So it's, it, it's you know, a lot of people say your job must be so hard, I don't know how you can do it and all that, but I feel very lucky to have this job and I feel... Like I have learned so much from all of my patients and families that it's a, it's a bonus for me. And I know, like we saw that we had a big spike in, in new registrants this year, which yeah. is hard to deal with. Yeah. But on the other, it's hard to know in my head how to feel about that because right. I don't want a lot more people. But hopefully, it means there are a lot more people that are getting help that wouldn't right. otherwise. Right. There could. I mean, it just could be a, a greater awareness of the ALS Association and what we have to offer and maybe people have been 
not seeking that out and now they're learning more and more about the disease it's you hear about it a lot more i feel and people are are looking for resources now Mm -hmm. to help them which is that is a very good thing Mm -hmm. it's positive so and in a way you're kind of like customer service Mm -hmm. um you obviously are more than that but by providing good care and good social work then those people who are going online or talking to friends, they find out there's ALS, they're able to go back and say, hey, you should go and talk to the ALS Association. I've talked with Gail, or I've talked with Anne, I've talked with Brenda, right. and they're really helpful. So, Absolutely. It just, it, you know, it's like a referral process or just, you know, we got help from this group, you should do it too, and here's the number, give them a call. Mm-hmm. So that is, that's a positive thing as well. And now that I think about it, you actually probably get some calls beyond ALS sometimes where people are like, oh, you need a social worker, you should probably contact Anne because she could probably direct you in the right direction. She's good at that. Sure. I mean, I just, from um, friends, neighbors, people I know who know that I am a social worker will ask me about other things and do you know of where I could call or do you know of a resource? So yeah, you know, people, once they kind of hear about what you do, you become a resource for them as well, which is fine. I'm happy to help in any way I can. Well, one of the ways that Anne and the others are helping is through uh, helping people navigate the insurance process in the healthcare industry. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. Uh, before we do that, I want to remind you to go to alsphiladelphia.org and uh, get involved in many ways. You can still donate to Walk to Defeat ALS uh, all year round. Uh, you can become an advocate, a volunteer, and of course your donations help people like Anne and others provide the best in patient care all year round. Uh, and you can find lots of ways to do that, again, at alsphiladelphia.org and follow us on social media at ALS Philadelphia. So, Anne, you, you help people with a lot of their questions, and I'm sure you get a lot of them. And one of the things that we were talking about is insurance. Healthcare is crazy, and mm-hmm. doesn't matter what happens in Washington or Harrisburg, there's not really a good way to make it easy. It's not like, I'm going to go and buy $500 in healthcare. <laughs> right. <laughs> People sometimes think it should be very simple, but it's just, it's hard to make it simple. So how do you make it simple? (laughs) Or how do you make it easier when someone comes in? Because, you know, I have health insurance, but I I don't expect to get ALS, hopefully. But I'm sure I should be prepared for things generally. So what do you do when someone comes in and helps them with that kind of process? Well, when they're first diagnosed and we first meet them, we find out what type of insurance they do have. I think the biggest issue that we find with insurances is durable medical equipment. Many, most of our, all of our patients at some point through this disease process will need to start using durable medical equipment, which can be anything from a straight cane to a power wheelchair. Mm -hmm. Um, Many insurances, not all, but many, like uh, many of the HMO insurances may only cover your DME needs, your durable medical equipment needs, at an 80% coverage rate. Mm. Which, when you're getting a walker, you're getting a cane, is it's not that bad. They cover 80%, and then you're responsible for the 20% copay. And on a smaller piece of equipment, that's not a big deal most of the time. Right. If you need a $100 thing, 20 bucks. Exactly. I can it's not that big of a deal. But as your needs increase and the things that you need get bigger and more involved, the prices get 
bigger and much more involved. And many times when we really begin to see problems is when somebody needs a power wheelchair, which a custom-made power wheelchair can cost up to $30,000. I mean, it's like buying a car. And a, and a nice car. Though. And it's a very nice car. It's got all the bells and whistles and, you know, it's it's great. But a 20% copay on a $30,000 chair is not great. No, that's $6,000. It's a lot of money. And most, Look how I did that math right up there. That, I'm impressed because <laughs> I was like, please don't ask me. But, um, you know, um, a lot of our people cannot afford that. It's too much money. And, of course, there are those who can and those who do. But I'd say the norm for most of our patients is when you're looking at that type of copay, it's too much. Mm -hmm. And then you're faced with the situation of, you know, what are we going to do? Especially because you have people who, who have ALS that also have kids, they have yes. home, they have a lot of other financial issues beyond ALS. Right. And having an HMO when you're healthy and everything's going great is usually great. You know, you have a low copay when you go to the doctor, you have a low copay for your prescriptions. If you've got young children, it works really well because they're at the doctor constantly. But you then factor in getting ALS and all the needs that are going to come along with that. And then it becomes really kind of not so great anymore. Mm -hmm. So we really try to find out what the insurance is. We encourage them to call their insurance companies or go online to their insurance websites and find out what their coverage is for durable medical equipment, home care, you know, if they're going to need visiting nurses, home care down the road, hospice care. These are all things that they really need to learn about what their coverage is. And for some people, that's no problem for them to do. They pick up the phone, they get on the computer, they handle it. Others, it's overwhelming to them, and then we help them navigate that process. So that's... Um, a very big piece. Another big piece that fall, comes along is when people are diagnosed and say they're progressing rather quickly or they've come to us and they're already fairly well into the, the disease process, but they're still working, but working's becoming extremely difficult, we begin to talk to them about Social Security disability. Mm -hmm. um, and with that, you know, with a diagnosis of ALS, you are automatically approved for Social Security disability. Um, traditional social security disability when people apply without a diagnosis of ALS most of the time are denied the first time around and then they have to appeal the process and go through if they are approved then they get the financial benefit of the social security check but they must wait two years before they get Medicare coverage with ALS they get the financial benefit and the Medicare coverage all at the same time there is no two-year wait and that's because of a lot of the advocacy that was done years ago. Exactly. Um, you weren't here for that part, mm -hmm. but so I'm glad. I'm sure you're glad you missed out on that part. But though <laughs> um, so you've done advocacy with us, yes. Um, but um, you know, I, I'm sure that a lot of people who are involved here were involved in making sure that happened. Yes, and, and that's been huge. Yeah, it's huge. So they can apply for Social Security disability on the the. You know, once they have their last day worked at their job, they can go ahead and apply for Social Security Disability. It is a process. It takes time. There's paperwork that they have to complete. There's paperwork that their doctors have to complete. It then needs to be submitted to Social Security. But it will be approved, and it takes effect five months from that last day that you worked. And then you get your Medicare immediately. 
And then we have to discuss with them because with the Medicare, they're going to have 80% coverage with Medicare. So then you've got to get what we call a Medigap or Medicare supplemental plan, like AARP is a big one. Gerber Life is another one. I mean, there's a lot of Medigap plans that you can investigate and find what would best suit your needs and then get that so you have your 20% covered as and, well. And what you qualify for. Exactly. I have a headache just trying to figure out what you've said and I don't have to do it. So <laughs> I'm sure a it's a very and stressful thing. And, it is. And stress is a hard thing for someone with ALS or their yeah, caregiver. It is. So we, you know, we talk a lot or they may call with a lot of questions or, or you know, they're dealing with Social Security, which at times can be stressful and frustrating as yeah. well and we try to help them navigate that process too we can refer them to independent insurance broker brokers who can give them information about the medigap plan so they can sit down and choose the best plan that suits their needs and you know go about it that way but it, it's overwhelming it's especially when you're not expecting to have to do this and then all of a sudden here you are with a diagnosis and now all this new stuff that you need to handle. I'm sure 90 plus percent were not expecting to have to do this. No. Most people that come to you, this is something they did not expect to happen. They mm -hmm. expected, I mean, they don't know what to expect, right? Right. They don't. So but that's our role. We help guide them through that process and, you know, let them know what they need to do. I encourage them to call me, email me. There's no question that's dumb. Right. And, you know, that's, we're helping try to make it easier for them to get through this process to keep it as, you know, non-frustrating as possible. And I'm sure a lot of those questions that, even the ones that sound dumb to the person asking the first time, you probably get a lot that you're like, wow, I never thought of that before. That's right. going to be important for me to bring up for future conversations. Exactly. Sure. Absolutely. So You learn a lot from the problems that people have because the yes. problems that they have in 2015 are probably a lot different than the problems they had one, over your years of being a social worker because oh, yeah. the whole industry changes so often. It does. So you have to keep on top of what these changes are so you can best serve your patients and families too. And sometimes you find out these changes through the patients and families because they're the ones dealing with Social Security or the insurance company and then they tell us and then we have to figure it out. And so you said you talk to, you can refer them to insurance brokers sometimes. Do you, like if Steve comes in and he has ALS and he's got a great program going on. Will you sometimes then go to Bob or Sarah if they have ALS and say, you know, this is working out for him or maybe not say that person, but this is something that's come up and this is working well. Maybe this, these are strategies that you can use. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, if somebody's doing well with the resources that they have or connections that they may know about, then I will say, look, check this out. See mm -hmm. if this is helpful for you as well. So, yeah, you have to share the wealth. Or, I mean, that's the one thing. We all, in this world of ALS, you know, the, for those of us who work for the ALS Association and those of us who have ALS, we have to work together as a team. Or this is, it's, you know, we have to do it for the greater good. And, you know, now I'm thinking about it because you're talking about all these different places that people come from, the kind of insurances they have, mm -hmm. you probably have to deal with a lot of different insurance plans on your and, and understand them. But also, we have three states, especially that you have to deal with, because um, working in the Philadelphia area, you have people from Delaware and New Jersey, so I bet that adds some complications as well. Yeah, that, not every plan or, every, like, for instance, people who are on Medicaid or medical assistance, which is a state-run, you know, health insurance plan, for low lower income people, every state is different. So you can't right. go on what 
Pennsylvania does because New Jersey, Delaware may do it totally differently. So you really have to, you know, keep on top of what the changes are and know who your connections are in each state and each local office to be able to know what to do and what to say. And beyond that, sometimes the stuff happens on a county level. I yes. know with home care agency sometimes and mm-hmm. things like that. So I, I just want everyone that's listening to show some appreciation for what the social workers do here because you have to understand dozens of insurance plans at times and what they the implications of those are. You have to understand the changes that have happened over the years and months because they happen so quickly. You have to understand multiple states and maybe even beyond those three because maybe you have even have some people that come from Maryland or something mm-hmm. occasionally. Or if they've moved, right? Because we have right. patients that come from other states that come here. That creates a problem, right? It does. Yes. <laughs> so how, you have to have like a supercomputer of information in your head at all times that people will probably expect you to have the answer at the drop of a hat. Yeah, I mean, we we know a lot and people expect us to know a lot, but there's also a lot that we still need to know and we need to find out about. And sometimes if that means you take their insurance card, you flip over on the back and look at that phone number and you call and you start with customer service and you go from there. Mm-hmm. And that can be a real drawn out, tedious process, but sometimes that's what you have to do. Well, I know I, I mentioned this in other podcasts. And I mentioned it a lot since I started here. My, I, my, my grandfather had ALS, and my grandmother on my mom's side had Parkinson's, and my mom has MS. So, my mom is a bit more versed in healthcare issues. So she knew what to ask. She right. she knew what she didn't know a lot of the time. So, when someone would come up with a test for my grandmother, she would say, "Well, she doesn't want that," or. Um, oh, we need to do this with insurance. We need to do this with the nursing home she's at and such mm-hmm. and such. My dad, awesome person, great son and dad, but he didn't have that knowledge. So he didn't know what he didn't know. And I imagine there's more people like my dad who come into this not knowing what they don't know. Right. So they have to really rely on someone that's going to be able to ask those questions for them. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's part. That's what we're here for, to ask the right questions, to get the information that we need to then help them prepare for everything that they are going to need, mm-hmm. insurance-wise, care-wise, and all of that. So it's just a collaborative effort all the way around. Yeah. So people have a lot of questions. Do you think it's best um, if they're coming to you, maybe not the first time, because the first time they have to really get that stuff dumped on them and, yeah. and learn a lot, but maybe this, um, as soon as they can in the process find out all the questions they may have and get them to you or whoever their social worker is so that they can uh, take advantage of that and like no question left unturned if possible. Yeah. I mean, when we first meet them on the diagnostic day, depending on how they're doing, some people are, they're able to sit with you and talk about everything. Others just, you know, they're, they're upset and they can only take in so much, which is completely understandable. So many times what I'll do is, um, I may follow up with them with a phone call, and then if there are any type of pressing issues, we try to start working on it before their first full clinic visit where they meet the entire team. Um, So we try to work on some of those issues before we meet again, or when we meet again for their first full clinic and they're meeting the whole team, many times they've had a couple months to kind of digest things a bit and then we can really start getting into you know the nitty-gritty of everything at that point it just depends on the person where they are in the disease process and what the the needs are Mm -hmm. and we have to assess that with each patient that we meet so here's a tough question for you um what's the hardest the hardest day is it the diagnostic day knowing that they're getting that information the first time or is it those later sessions when you've seen someone and you know what they're going through more because now you know them on a personal level. Um, 
There's no right or wrong answer to that. I, they're both equally hard. Yeah. It's hard to see somebody so devastated with a diagnosis of ALS. It's, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. But it's also equally heartbreaking to watch somebody deteriorate from visit to visit. And especially somebody that you've gotten to know quite well and you see the changes and you see the struggles and you see the toll that it's taking on their loved ones. That's hard. Yeah. It's really hard. And you see a lot of people in three or maybe even six month increments sometimes. Right. You see them more often than we usually do at the chapter, but certain people we see very often. Right. We just lost our friend Gary here Mm -hmm. and we saw him every couple, as often at chapter events as you did at the clinic. So, um, but you can see after a few months, there's a, could often be a big transition. And it's, it's shocking, which sounds silly because we know that this is a degenerative disease. We know that changes are happening, but I don't know, I guess when you begin to really, to get to know somebody, really like them, care about them, and then you see them Mm -hmm. and how they've changed, it's it's hard. It's hard to watch. So... It's hard on us. It's hard. That's what I mean. It's hard on me, which sounds selfish and ridiculous because I'm not going through it, but I'm working with them and I'm fond of them and I, you know, you just hate to see someone struggling and that's the hard part. That's what I love about the people who work in our patient services department is that there is this really hard thing on them because it is. It's harder on you than it is on most of us because I don't see them as often. I don't, I, there's certain people at ALS that I form a very close relationship with through mm-hmm. advocacy and, and awareness and coming into our office and going to events. But you probably form a deeper bond because you're going through these health things. And yet almost every time I talk to someone from patient services, I'll say something similar. Like, well, I don't want to feel selfish or like that you take on so much. And that's, that's a lot. And I think everyone should appreciate that, that, you know, this is a really personal thing to the people who are doing this on a daily yeah. basis. It is personal. And, we get to know them so well. I mean, many times we're visiting them at home between right. clinic visits. So we see them in their homes. We meet some of their family. Like we see their we see their lives. We get to know them not just as Bill who's coming to clinic. We see him at home with his family and his children, his grandchildren. And just it's, you know, it makes an impact. And when you see them at home, it reminds you of watching House, you know, where, where they would fi- try and figure out what's wrong with someone. They'd go to their home and be like, oh, well this toy had this drug in it or there's like these sharp objects here. There's something here. Do you often at the home visits realize, Oh, this is not really easy for accessing. Mm -hmm. Um, it would be easier if you lived in this room or other things like that. Oh, sure. It gives you a better understanding of just see how they're functioning on a daily basis. And then it helps us make recommendations for what would make life easier. And hopefully the patient and family agree with that sometimes they don't want to make those changes they want to keep doing things the way they have been doing them and you know we have to respect that but it's just it does help a home visit helps tremendously you see a whole nother component of what's happening with you know your patient and their family and you like you said um some people don't want to hear certain things yeah and they'll make them bad people sometimes it's hard to hear sometimes for various reasons right um so, and you have a team, the mental health nurse, the nurse, the neurologist, the other kinds of people that work there. Do you sometimes coordinate and say, you know, this is a tough thing for them to get. It's going to be a lot easier if I do it or if you do it. Like, mm-hmm. you have a better relationship with Steve, so you should do it. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. We all, like, figure out if we're dealing with, with a situation where 
uh, someone's having a very hard time accepting, you know, a change or what needs to be done, many times it works best when we find the person who has the, the closest relationship or can make the greatest impact. Whatever that reason is, you, you jump on it and mm -hmm. go with it. And it doesn't work every time, but a lot of times it does. So, yeah. you know, not everybody's going to be super pals with every one of their pals. Yeah. Um, of the team, there's usually one that has made that connection, at least one of us. Right. And, you know, so you're talking about those connections you make. And let's talk about a happier note. Um, you make a lot of connections that happen beyond the clinic experience then, too. Um, our social workers, our patient services staff attend a hot chocolate that you've been to, the walks that you've been to, advocacy, mm -hmm. um, ALS Express, um, and other events. So what kind of things do you like to do beyond helping people deal with ALS? Because that's... Some things are a little bit easier to deal with, right? Oh, sure. I mean, hot chocolate, it was, it's, it's a social event for many of us yeah. and for our patients. And it's fun. It's, it's almost a, a relief or it's a break from seeing someone in the clinical setting. You see them out where, you know, at the aquarium, it's beautiful. And it's like a social evening together where it's not like ALS is forgotten, but it's more about just being with our, our patients who are many of them becoming our friends and mm -hmm. you know spending quality time with them is it a i know it's a catharsis for people with als to go to an event like that and kind mm -hmm. of forget about it for a bit mm -hmm. can it be a catharsis for you too to see people in a much more relaxed setting oh yeah just to see them having fun mm -hmm. and you know enjoying themselves and doing something that they like to do or it's you see a whole nother side to that person it's you know, we see our patients and there are patients and they're sick and they have ALS. But when you see them outside in different venues, they're, they're Jim who, you know, loves football and, and wants, to, you know, loves, you know, music or things like that. You see a whole other side to this person that you don't necessarily get to see when you see them at clinic. And I guess it makes your job better. I mean, not only because you like going to that event, but then the next time you're really like, oh... Jim likes football. I'm going to talk to him about that oh, now. Sure, or, yeah. or maybe um, Susan was having issues with that I saw in this setting with their caregiver or their spouse. Or maybe there's something I should resolve here that might make the whole situation better. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't have seen it if I hadn't been at that event. Yeah. I mean, it just gives you a better perspective on, you know, the people that we work with. Um, I mean, I do a monthly support group for our patients and caregivers. So I have patients coming with their family members. We meet once a month. And I really get to see and hear about a whole lot of other things that are going on in their lives. And I just feel like I'm, I know them on a whole other level mm -hmm. than I would just seeing them at clinic, which then helps when I do see them at clinic and we address certain issues that are going on. And it just the relationship that we formed makes it easier to talk about some of the more difficult things. You know, I talk to a lot of people through advocacy and through sharing their stories in my role. And I, I find that the support groups that you, Judy Leiter and others do at our chapter, uh, Jen Clapper does one, right? And, um, they love the support groups. It's like their favorite thing that we provide. It's like, well, that doesn't cost us that much money. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so one, it must feel good to you knowing that, you get a lot of positive feedback for it, but mm -hmm. two, is, do people like it because it's a lot more relaxed atmosphere? Do they like it because they can learn from other patients? What What's the value of the, the support group, and why should someone do it? I think because it's, uh, first of all, you're with others who truly get it and understand what you're going through. Mm. 
you're with someone else who has ALS, they it's just that common bond. You're not talking to somebody who might have, you know, diabetes or just your friend or family who doesn't have really any illness going on, but they're there for you. They want to be a support, but they don't totally get what you're going through. In my group, our patients are all going through ALS together. They're all at different stages, but they have that common bond. Of right. ALS. It'd be hard to get everyone at the same stage. Right. Right. Um, and it's just, I think it's a, um, a support for them. They're not alone. They're, they're with others who get it. Uh, their, their family members are there with other family members who are caregivers who are going through many of the same things. It's just the commonality of everything. They're able to make the jokes that they might not make in other things. Right. They laugh at certain things right. or be upset about certain things, too. That right. It's a safe place where they can come to really share exactly how they're feeling, whether it's, you know, I hate ALS, this really sucks, to, I mean, there's, you don't have to worry about offending anybody or making somebody uncomfortable. You're with people who get it. Mm -hmm. And I think that goes a very long way. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've talked to Brenda about her, because she's done social group, mm -hmm. support groups. And a, a lot of the people on our staff have done the uh, patient services, have done them one way or another. And it sounds like in addition to the patients liking to do them, the staff likes it too, because they can interact in a much more mm -hmm. relaxed way. And you can feel much more connected to the patients. You do, and you just learn so much more. I've just learned so much more from them about what they're struggling with. Not that I would ever truly understand it or feel it because I don't have ALS and I'm not in their shoes, but I feel like it's given me a greater appreciation, greater empathy for what they may be going through. And it's educating me, too. Mm -hmm. It absolutely is educating me. Yeah, so you can go back and talk to people and say, oh, I, I learned this from the support group. Right. And I'm sure that maybe that gets some feedback to join it. Yes. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I when I meet new people and once they, I get to know them a little bit. I, I if you if I feel like a, they might be really good candidates for the group, I encourage them to come and attend. And, and that's hard for many people. For the first time, it's a scary prospect. It's overwhelming. What am I going to see when I get there? Is it going to be upsetting to me? And I just try to reassure them that. You know, it, it's a safe place. It's you're in good company. If you don't like it, you don't ever have to go again. I say that to everybody. Right. One and done is fine. It's totally up to you. We're not going to come beat you up. Exactly. There's, you know, there's you're not signing on the dotted line as a permanent thing. But most, I'd say, most people who come continue to come. It's got to make you feel good. Yeah, I mean, I honestly, that's the best feedback you can get. It is, but you know, I'm there to guide them and to support them, but it's their group to mm -hmm. run. It's their baby, and I'm just there to help it along, and they do most of the work. I mean, I can't take a whole lot of credit. They're doing all the work. See, again, you well, know. it's true. <laughs> well, I'm it's sure, true. sure. I'm just like, here I am being like, oh, everyone's great. And you're like, well, we're good. We're okay. We just do. We just have to learn every insurance in three different states, and we take care of 500 questions, but we're all right. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's... We have a very humble group. <laughs> um, so... You have a lot of very big balls you have to throw in the air. And I'm saying that because I have milk balls, right? So yeah. that's what I was thinking. Um, and so it can be very, very challenging, I'm mm -hmm. sure. Um, but you, so you, you're helping the patients. But you also, this is National Caregivers Month in November. We're just finishing our annual luncheon, mm -hmm. um, which is honoring all, all forms of caregivers and, and appreciating them. What do you do to help the person who's the caregiver to, to help them with their transition? I guess is how I would put it. 
I just try to, you know, when I see them from visit to visit or in, even in between visits, I try to sense where they are in this process. Caregiving is exhausting. It's 24-7. Mm-hmm. It's overwhelming. And you can see the toll that it takes on some people. And they may not see that. They are so consumed with providing the care and feeling as if they need to be there all the time to do every single thing. And I, I feel like one of my primary roles is to help them, first of all, give them the resources that they need to provide the care, but also help them realize that they can't do everything or they can't run themselves down to the point where they're sick themselves then they can't be a good caregiver anymore if they're so run down and exhausted on top of that. So I try to encourage them to seek out other resources, you know, get the support that they need in order to continue to be a good caregiver without running themselves into the ground, which is hard because a lot of people don't want to get the extra help. They want to do it themselves. They feel it's their responsibility to do it themselves, which is very noble and all of that. But in the end... You don't get any... Award for There's it. no award, except you're completely depleted. And even if you got an award, you would be too tired to lift it up. Exactly. <laughs> it seems so, like a very American thing where people just brag about how much they worked. And right. you're like, well, we could go to some other countries and be like, well, we take some vacations occasionally. Right. Yeah, we seem to want to just draw and run ourselves into the ground. I don't know. You know, so it's... And I'm sure you go, because you say you talk with the whole patient services team and the clinic mm-hmm. team, you probably make sure that no one else on your even staff is running themselves too ragged. Right, because that can happen too. You know, you get caught up and you, you you worry about these people and you want to be there for them and provide whatever we can provide. And, you know, you have to, I don't know, be aware of your limitations and, and seek out others to help you in this process of, of helping our patients. Yeah, in our last podcast with uh, the Hemsing family, they, their patriarch Bill Hemsing, he passed away 15 years ago. And they learned that one of the important things they learned was how to ask for help both for him and for them. Yeah. And I'm sure that's something that we all need to learn is how to feel okay with asking for help because there's nothing, there's no, it's strength to ask for help, not weakness. It is, but people think it's a weakness and, you know, it's hard to say I can't do this anymore. It seems as if they feel like they're failing in some way Mm -hmm. when they say I can't do this anymore and it's not. It's just you need help and there's nothing wrong with that and that's part of our job is to assess for that and tell them about the resources and the supports that are out there and guide them through that process and get them connected and get them the help that they need because they need rest too. They need to take care of themselves as well. Right. That We're here not just for the patient. We're here for the caregiver so you don't have to do it on your own. Exactly. If you could do it on your own, there wouldn't be an ALS association. Right. So, well, also if you could do it on your own, you wouldn't need people like Ann Cooney, but we all do in some way, <laughs> shape, or form. Um, we were going to talk about just insurance, but we did talk about that, and then we had so much more to hear from Anne in terms of all that she does and the social workers here at the chapter. Um, of course, you know, show your appreciation online, uh, and if you have some things you want to add and say thanks to Anne, do that on our social media, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all at ALS Philadelphia. And, of course, you can donate online at today, even to a walk to defeat ALS, so the walks are over for 2015. Your donations still make a difference to make sure that people like Ann can provide care. I just did a hand gesture, and it doesn't make any sense because it's a podcast. <laughs> uh, so, again, ALSPhiladelphia.org, at ALS Philadelphia. Thanks, Ann, for sharing all your perspective today. Thank you.